seems like every local in the valley here has a mountain bike. This sport is really exploding. I break the law. I ride an illegal trip. And it's getting away from the cops, the cars, the concrete. Those Abaka is a Chinese down here. Here's the snowboarders together on a run. You're looking for trouble. You know, they get on skis and they just think they can overcome the world. The more you around, the more you're going to find out. I like to think that death is out of the question. The life starts at 40 miles an hour. You ride the chairlift for two or three weekends and you have to go like climb hills all week just to be even with God, you know? Welcome to Mind the Track with Powbot and Trail Whisper. Ramblings from the skin track in winter, single track in summer, celebrating the core lords and fostering the culture of mountain life in the Sierra Nevada and Great Basin. Today's April 11th, 2023, and you're listening to episode number six. Next to me is the Professor of POW, the Director of the Powder Intelligence Agency, and the United Shredders of Snow. The one and only Powbot. What's up, buddy? What's up, Powbot? Oh, you know, just stoked to be here again and doing this. It's been a few weeks. I know. We've been missing each other, but we did just connect on a good mission. But uh, it's really good to be back here and, and getting this thing off the ground. Yeah. We're, we're there. I know. We're, well, there's been some big news. I think the first thing we want to open with today is that we're live. Uh, our website today, I got going. We've got our first five episodes up on the web um, it might take a minute to get through the RSS feeds, but it's alive, man. We pre-recorded the first five episodes, so yeah. So if we're going live with five, live doing, with five, live with five, doing six tonight. And uh, and thanks yeah. for the rad intro. You know, after that one last week, I got a little something written up for you here too. All right, let's hear it. So uh, you know, the, after that honorable <laughs> introduction last week, Kurt, you know, it's just great to be here and do this. And uh, you know, I want to introduce my co-host as uh, and give him a proper inter- introduction as the resurrector of forgotten dreams and trail. Uh, and you're the doctor of the sense, the guru of gravel, a wartime honored uh, sergeant of Sandy. Uh, you're the angry single speeder who turned agreeable by a thousand miles of dusty trail and the Freddie Mercury of fall lines. And you're also the battalion chief of exploring the remote corners of the Great Basin. Oh, man. Nice one. Go, dude. Yeah, Thanks, that, buddy. I, I worked on that one for I like like that. five minutes today. I like that. Heck yeah. Yeah, super stoked to be here, dude. Yeah. Yeah, and you said Sandy. Um, yeah, another big piece of information. You like how I worded that one in That there? was good. So uh, before we even uh, launched, we got our first supporter of Mind the Track, um, a new app that launched back in November. They're almost as new as we are, called Sendy. Um, and it's an online marketplace for selling, buying, selling, and renting used gear. Everything from like fishing gear to mountain bikes to snowboards to split boards, you know, skis, surfboards. It's all the stuff I like. like. It's all the toys and all the tools for playing outside. And um, it's kind of serendipitous how it came together. Um, Found out about it from a friend and who did work for them and uh, took a look at it. And I was like, man, this is actually like super useful because I buy and sell you stuff all the time. And I'm constantly sick of being like, like trying to be scammed by morons and, and dealing with just shady flakes. Yep. And, um, and having to meet people in random parking lots because you don't yeah, want them coming over to your house dude, and meeting your hot wife. Uh, yeah, totally, <laughs> dude. I don't want to be doing any of that business. So, you know, this is like a really cool new app. Um, it's also backed by Cam Zink and Travis Rice. So yeah. it's got some weight behind it. And um, yeah, they heard a couple of our episodes and we're super pumped on it. I think we have a lot of like, you know, overlap 
uh, yep. you know, listeners, like, you know, their target market and ours are kind of the same and we're about the outdoor community and just doing good things and, and, you know, buying used when you don't need to buy new, like I'm all about that. Yep. And so anyway, consume yeah, less. Sendy, you can check them out at Sendy, S-E-N-D-Y dot I-O. Uh, you can download the app for free and start browsing, man. You might find some stuff you want to buy, or if you got, I know I got gear to sell. That's where I'm, I'm going to learn the app from that perspective because I'm that person who always buys stuff and just sits on it. And then I think that someone's going to need to borrow it at some point, or I'll just hold on to it. Yeah. But I, I've got some stuff. I've got an old pair of split bindings, actually not old, but almost a brand new pair of Burton missions for split boarding since I just went to the dark side and I'm a hard booter now. I'm going to try to put those oh, up hard this week. Booter. Oh, you're <laughs> such a hard booter. I'm going to try to sell those. And I, and then from that whole thing, I've got a, I've got a pair of verts that work with sparks and I'm going to throw up there and, and just sort of learn, learn the platform and see if I can get some things sold. Nice. Yeah. Well, it's exciting. You know, we got a supporter already and we're just getting this thing off the ground for our listeners. Um, if you have, you know, this is a show that we really want to focus on feedback and input from mm-hmm. the, from our, from our listeners. Um, there's a couple ways you can get in touch with us. If you want to, um, send, um, you know, like, uh, suggestions of people who we should interview or topics you'd like us to talk about feedback about the show, what we're doing, right. What we could do better. We're all about just feedback. You know, we want to make this thing as cool as we can. Um, you can email us at mind the track podcast at gmail.com. You can reach out to us at our website through our contact page at mind the and we're also on Instagram at Mind the Track. So drop us a DM and uh, let us Damn. know what's up. We're live. You know? And we're and, up in the world, man. Yeah, we're, we'd be stoked to get you know this off the ground and start getting some people giving us some input and you know help totally. us steer the ship a little bit. Yeah. Well, so let's get into this, man. First off, where are we recording tonight? Because this is a pretty amazing location we're in. Yeah. So with our guest tonight, you know, I kind of chose a spot that was sort of half halfway between our, our our houses here in Tahoe, and was a good meeting spot, and sort of plays into his his uh, you know professional career. Uh, we're, we're recording at uh, some dear friends of mine's house in their wine cellar downstairs. Yeah, uh, so uh, cool. Don and Brian Birch are very dear friends of my wife, Nicole and I's. And uh, Brian is the lead contractor for Jim Morrison Construction. So obviously that's why this place has got such nice touches. He's pretty a really, dialed. He's a pretty, pretty dialed builder. Yeah. And, uh, you know, really helps helps Jim there with all the beautiful homes they build here in Tahoe. And then I've had a long uh, running relationship with his wife, Dawn. She is the uh, local wine rep for Chambers and Chambers. And uh, I've been buying wine from her for my restaurants for 20 years. And uh, we're 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 you know, stoked to be here in in her wine room and recording this podcast in a wine cellar. Very thankful. That's so cool. Yeah. And so we, you know, with that said, we, you know, we've got someone here from the wine world and from the shred world. So uh, you know, I bring I'd like to bring our guest on board and and introduce uh, Duncan Arnott Roberts. Uh, he's a founding member of the Powder Intelligence Agency as well. Oh. And uh, he's the mayor of Homewood Ski Resort. Oh. He's also Ric Flair's WWF tag team champion of front, <laughs> front side hacks. He's a master, <laughs> master wordsif, wordsmith of neo, neologism, which I wasn't really sure what that was, but he does it all the time. He just makes up rad words. Uh, he's, he's had the honor of standing on the podium at the Downeyville classic when mountain biking was still, uh, pretty much mountain biking pretty much scared most moms. Uh, he's, he's the barefoot stomper of grapes and long climbs on a bike. Uh, and, and you know, the, the wine world has recently won him accolades in the world of winemaking. Uh, Duncan, it's great to have you on the show, bud. Thanks, Palbot. Welcome, Doug. Uh, thank you. Welcome uh, to Kurt. Mind the Track. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. 
um, what a, what a cool overlap in uh, in things that I love. Uh, you know, sh shredding all things white and powdery and dusty and gritty and uh, all the things that go into to making wine. It's uh, they really uh, they play well with each other. So. Cool. What are we What talking. are we drinking? By the way, I want to yeah, get into that. Well, we'll jump right into the to the beverage in our glass. We've got um, a 2014 Pinot Noir from a vineyard called Trout Gulch, which is gorgeous. Uh, it's down above the little village of Aptos in Santa Cruz Mountains on the west side of the mountains. Um, this is an area that's pretty cold. It's really influenced by Monterey Bay. It, this vineyard was planted in 1979 and fairly uh this was fairly renegade viticulture at the time this was uh this was not a proven area so this was planted i'll date myself here this was planted when i was seven years old and now uh, my partner nathan roberts and i get to work with these grapes um that have been growing there for i'll let you do the math but a long time so we're we're real fortunate to work with it it's incredible raw material which is what we what we look look for yeah grapes the grapes in the vineyard site is what i'm know of you guys to be sort of honed in on and and then also just making like you know very european style uh sort of you know you're you're de you've definitely been a trend center in your generation of winemakers to make wine that's sort of you know food friendly you've toned down the alcohol you've toned down the sugar and you make a ripper juice <laughs> thanks yeah i think well that that comes from a a, a lot of drinking you got to figure out what you're gonna you got to set your uh, compass somehow and so um, we were fortunate, Nathan and I, uh, you know, we, we grew up in, in Napa in the 70s and 80s and uh, kind of watched as the ripeness continued to climb and, and wines became more powerful um, yeah. with, you know, critical acclaim from particularly Robert Parker and the Wine Advocate and Wine Spectators started giving higher and higher scores to, to bigger and more powerful wines. And um, in the beginning, you know, when we started our, our winery 21 years ago, we made a couple of pretty ripe vintages, big, powerful wines. That's just what we kind of saw as the way to go and uh, kind of realized pretty quickly that those wines were not really aging as well as we thought they might. And mm. they really were really pretty quickly. We realized that that was not the kind of wine that we enjoyed drinking. Um, and again, that was from just tasting wines from all around the world and, you know, being fortunate enough to travel uh, to Europe and, especially to France and, and to taste with some of these old producers that have been making wine for generations in their families. And, you know, it's a cooler, generally a cooler area, especially Burgundy and the, the Rhone Valley. And it helped inform our decision-making, you know, moving forward with our brand. And so we sort of started to pull in the reins a bit on, on ripeness and, and sort of emulate a little bit of what we saw in the old world that had been done for a long time before we were even yeah. on this planet. Um, and that sort of helped, helped guide us and, and sort of, um, you know, set our compass moving forward. So yeah, food friendly, I think is a great way to describe it, but just wines that you can sit down and drink a couple glasses of and enjoy with food and, and not have it level you and uh, you know, be able to function the next day. And have well. a tip yeah. of that tip of the hat to the old world. Uh, oh, you for know, sure. That's, for I sure. get that in this wine that yeah. we're drinking, yeah. you know, that's mm -hmm. immediately there's an old world component. For sure. This Pinot that you don't get in a lot of California Pinot Noir. For sure. And and it took, you know, to be with full deference to the grower that planted this. This is this is a, a result of a vineyard that's planted in a cold place. You know, when, when, when you have grapes that ripen slowly with uh, a cool coastal climate, they develop loads of flavor and structure and intense um, aromatic qualities without 
excessive sugar yeah. and, and that's kind of magic and well let's talk about the yeah. wine a little bit i mean I, I think this might be the first podcast of like you know a, a bunch of bikers and shredding snowboarders to sit down and like dissect be all and, civilized and dissect. <laughs> well, so I, I i actually years ago i worked with that uh, somebody, uh, Warren Dignis was a friend of mine, uh, that worked, it was a waiter that I worked with and we'd had this incredible wine experience the night before. And we were chatting about on the chairlift at Squaw on a powder day. And this guy like turned and looked at us and he was like, let me get this right. Like you guys are talking about like, you know, a 92 Barolo and you're a couple ski bums. Like, and we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what we're doing. We're doing here. Yeah. But yeah, let's talk about this wine. Kurt, what, I mean, I want to put you on the spot and you know, it's not being someone from the wine world, like myself and Duncan, like, what do you, what are you picking up on this wine? What are you tasting? Yeah. I always laugh about like when they, you know, they say, what, what is the finish like or yeah. whatever? And I'm just like, I don't know, man, it's wine. It tastes fine, but go I, with it. I get, go with it. It's like, you're, it's like you're taking the SATs when you, when you taste wine, you just got to go with your gut instinct. That's, that's exactly right. Yep. Dank like, forest, man. Yeah. Yep. I taste dank. I taste like, you know, when you're riding your bike on the coast of California yep. and deep in the redwoods and it's all mossy and wet. It's like that. Nailed it. it. Nailed it, dude. I, <laughs> yeah. I was going to say it was like if I took a digger, if I went over the bars on my bike and I face planted into some like mossy wet yeah, rocks. Soil sampling with your mouth. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mossy <laughs> wet rocks. And then I, and then I came up and there was like a red raspberry bush right there. Ooh. And then I ate a couple, I don't know if it's raspberries, but it's definitely red fruit. With like, dirt in your teeth. With everything. dirt in my teeth. That's what I'm tasting in this Delicious. wine. Delicious. Well, you guys nailed it. I mean, this, this vineyard is actually well, a, got, a stone's throw from uh, Nicene Marks Forest, oh, which is some go. of the best mountain biking oh, yeah. um, in Santa Cruz. And you'll oh, yeah. get you'll get those flavors, or it, it just riding through the forest there, those smells and and that feeling. Um, I get the same thing. I mean, this is this vineyard is surrounded by redwoods. It sits right in the fog belt, which is about six hundred feet elevation. It's about four miles from the Monterey Bay, and so it's not high enough in the Santa Cruz Mountains to be uh, sort of above the fog. It sort of bathes in it on a daily basis, which brings mm. a real salinity to the wine as well, um, which I love. And you get. In, in, the closer you are to the ocean, the more influence you have, but you also, the grapes are absorbing that coastal fog, you know, and it's surrounded by forest and the air, the interplay with the vineyard, the interaction is real. You know, it's, um, osmosis is a real thing with grapes. They absorb it, um, for better, or for worse. And we, we've seen that in, in some vintages recently with, um, with wildfires, unfortunately. And you'll see that with, you know, smoke, mm-hmm. you know, can be just absorbed right through the skin of the grape. And then you end up fermenting it and you taste it in the wine and it, it's, it's no bueno. Um, so this this vineyard really, I I do think, has a voice of the Santa Cruz Mountains, and it tastes like the the loamy forest that, that surrounds the place. Yeah, uh, you're yeah you're you're so knowledgeable about wine, Duncan. Let's re, maybe rewind just a little bit and get into like you know where you started in that and and when you started your winery and where you grew up and and how you got into into wine. Sure, sure. Thanks. Yeah. Um, well, I, I I mentioned you know Nathan Roberts, my partner, and I we. We've been friends since third grade. You know, we played soccer together. We were in Cub Scouts together, and uh, we we grew up together in Napa um, in the '80s. His his mom was uh, the executive chef at, at Mondavi Winery, and she was really one of the first people to uh, plant a garden in front of the winery and start using the vegetables inside the winery in, 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 for lunches. You know, things like that. Something that's now farm to table. It's yeah, like farm a kitchen, to you know, it's like, Yeah, I mean, she was one of the first, and so we kind of grew up around wine. You know, we weren't in winemaking families per se, but we were we were. Um, surrounded by it and so Napa was quite a different place at that time in the 80s very agrarian community um and we we grew up around it I worked in cellars as a as a kid and dragon hoses at at Camus Vineyards and Acacia and Groth and 
William Hill, a long list of places. It's just what you did at the time. Um, Nathan's background is in uh, coopering uh, oak wine barrels. That's what his father did. So his his dad was taking apart old French oak barrels in the early 70s in Bordeaux, stacking them into containers, shipping them to California, rebuilding them, and then filling them with Mondavi Cabernet, where he worked. Um, pretty quickly, they realized that they could tool up and build barrels in California. So Nathan's dad actually became a cooper, uh, one of the first coopers in California to, to assemble uh, oak wine barrels from fr- French oak. They were they were shipping um, over French oak. Then. Yeah, so he was like, wait, wait, wow. let's stop flattening barrels and re- you know rebuilding them. Let's just build them from scratch here. So they established relationships with the forest and the mills over there, and the the you know the the, the farming of the of the trees there is is really meticulous and. There's, it's a very regimented process and the understory is cleared so the trees grow straight and the grain is uniform and it's a really, um, you know, intricate process that's esteemed and the, the trade of coopering barrels is, uh, is handed down generation to generation and it's, it's a very valued art still to this day. So Nathan, my partner, that's his background. Um, and we started, we started together in 2001 with just one barrel of wine in our, in our basement and. You know, we we ride bikes all around Sonoma County and Napa, and we knew kind of every every road and every canyon and every watershed, and helped us navigate um, where to at least begin the search for grapes. You know, I think like understanding soil and weather, you know, yep. terroir, is um, you can learn it through a book, but you can you can never learn it as well as you can uh, I feel from a from a bike. You know, you go over and up and over and down the mountain and up the mountain, and you feel the changes in the weather. You know where the expositions are. You know where the shade is. You know where the watersheds are. And um, that really helped inform our decision-making process about where to, to look for, for grapes. You know, we started with one barrel. The next year, we made two. Uh, we, ha- we got really lucky. I had a friend who was the wine buyer at Whole Foods in Santa Rosa at the time, and he took our entire second vintage, two barrels worth, floor stacked it next to the butcher case. And we joked that he was salting people's carts as they were walking by to get rid of it, you know, but um, that helped a lot because we got one check for all that wine and we, we plowed that right back into Ooh, buying more grapes in. the next year. And, you know, we both kept our day jobs. My, I was assistant winemaker at, a, at another winery and Nathan was a, a barrel maker. Uh, and, and we just kept our day jobs and kept growing the brand slowly, sort of making and, it in a cooperative the, space. Let's mention time, to the yeah. listeners what the brand is and sort of where those, where, what is the, the meaning of the names and the brand? Sure. Is. So the, the brand is Arnott Roberts and it's Arnott is my middle name and Roberts is uh, my partner's last name. So okay. Arnott is uh, my, was my grandfather's name. He was a Scot and uh, there's still an old 14th century home just north of Edinburgh called the Arnott Tower that's crumbling into the countryside at this point the the fam, family wealth from that from that era has long since been <laughs> dispersed um, you know at one point it was a it was a very uh, you know successful uh, farm I think just north of Edinburgh in, in the 1400s um, so tracing tracing long time back um, he was uh, killed in World War II uh, in a friendly fire incident in Java and uh, my grandmother was pregnant with my dad at the time. Um, she ended up evacuating from Java. She was there with him to uh, Tasmania, the closest Commonwealth country, Australia, and she had friends in Tasmania. So pretty harrowing story of her crossing the ocean on a military escort with submarine escort. And like the Japanese were advancing towards Australia and it was like the gnarliest wow. part of World War II. And, um, 
my dad was born in Hobart, Tasmania, uh, and then the war, World War II ended, and they moved back to Edinburgh, and my dad was raised there until he was about three, uh, at which point my grandmother was swept off her feet by a merchant marine from California who was on shore leave, and he adopted my dad, married my grandmother, and brought them back to California, where my dad ended up being raised in Santa Barbara. Okay. So he went from playing soccer on the cobbled streets of Edinburgh to playing beach volleyball in Santa Barbara. Uh, and for any listeners that know Santa Barbara, the John Dory was his restaurant, which is now Brophy Brothers. It's right down on the, on really? the pier. Yeah, it's incredible. Oh so, that, my gosh. so I grew up eating fish and chips off red and white check that. tablecloths, you know, like at, at his very simple. Oh, Brophy's legendary. Know, yeah. I mean, he was, he was real deal. He had like the anchor tattoo and the fish, you know, on a chain necklace. And like, he was, he was a salty salty dog um so but it was great they we, so, did know, they eventually sell it they my sold grandfather it sold it to the brophy brothers that okay. now run a super successful amazing place i still go there every time i'm so in santa barbara and i tell them the story and they give me a free anchor steam and it's like feel good <laughs> times ever, all over oh that's epic um, so yeah pr pretty cool um and then my dad uh went to you know went to school in santa barbara and ended up going to uh, getting accepted to cal went to law school there and and started in uh 73 in napa with a with a law firm called Dickinson, Peatman and Fogarty and until he retired. So that's sort of how I ended up being born in Napa. You're a true Cali boy. True Cali kid. And they, you know, they, they love skiing. Um, and they grew up going up to Big Bear, you know, in Southern California and making the trek. And, uh, they ended up, uh, getting us in skiing at Mount Reba at Bear Valley. So in the eighties, we spent a lot of time on that mountain they had a tiny little one bedroom. I think it was like 400 square foot apartment in the village there and in Bear Valley. So I grew up skiing there. It's where I learned to ski. Um, and then eventually, when did you switch to the to the to the knuckle drag board situation? Yeah, that was that was uh, 91 in Durango. Okay. I went Early. to school out in out in Durango, Colorado, at Fort Lewis, and uh, yeah, got myself a GNU snowboard and uh, with the remember with the high plastic uh, solid high backs. That didn't fold down. Yeah, oh, yeah. like unbelievable. And was it was one of the canoes that had like the the, the spiral, <laughs> yeah. like kaleidoscope yeah. Yeah. top sheet? Yeah, yeah. It was unbelievable. I mean, it was like, and I'm like, I don't know if I like this sport. Like in the beginning, like, this is brutal. <laughs> I was a skier. It was like at that point, it was fairly easy for me because I've been doing it for years. And I got in the snowboard, and then, um, and then I had, uh, a, I think I felt like I had an epiphany day uh, at Wolf Creek actually um, on a really deep bottomless pow day. And it didn't really matter what you were riding at that point, right? And then um, you could have been on a red I, sled. I think it might have been the first frontside hack, you know, like white to white room, and that was it. Like from that point on, it was like, okay, well, this is this is really the, fun. Yeah, this is the meaning of life. Yeah, exactly. That exactly. hat you're wearing, exactly. what vintage is that? Wolf so that, hat? this is mid '90s. This is from my dad's collection. That's he's got a corduroy. A of... That's a rad hat, dude. I love that hat. <laughs> the corduroy collection. Oh yeah. yeah. So, so I mentioned yeah, home, I mentioned Homewood Duncan, and and you know. You, you, You've been shredding there forever. So let's like, yeah, what's your, what's your history? What's your history with that place? 1980, I think was, uh, so I was eight years old and, uh, it was two resorts at the time, Tahoe Ski Bowl and Homewood. Um, and, but they were connected and you could kind of ride both places. You get one ticket and ride both places. Really? I didn't and, know that. Yeah, it was two it was resorts. Super cool. Yeah. So the South side of, which is where the, the South Lodge is now was Tahoe Ski Bowl. Okay. And the North end was Homewood. And to call those two different mountains was kind of funny, but they are separated by a big drainage. So it does make sense. Um, and yeah, just, just so many good memories there. And, and now, um, raising my kids on that mountain is, feels pretty awesome. And so I know it's, 
you could do a whole other show on the uh, on the pending privatization. Well, I, that I mountain, know. Let's but, just, uh, let's you know, just like, cut yeah. it. Like, you know, just like, yeah. one simple statement. I would like you, to talk yeah, about that for a One so simple statement. Everybody's you, flipping out. How do you feel shit, about right? it? Like everybody, I mean, you know, I don't live here full time, but I'm here a lot. And I'm here in, at Homewood a lot during the winter. And so everyone you talk to on the, on the chairs and everybody has got a different story about what the access is going to look like and what the timeline is and who, you know, it's the Yellowstone Club that's behind it. You know, big bucks, deep pockets, but... Yeah, for people who don't know what's going on, maybe just give a quick kind of rundown on Homewood, the resort on the West Shore, Tahoe, and what's going on with Homewood right now. Yeah, well, I mean, backing up Homewood, you know, just it's just one of the last remaining kind of old school family mountains, you know, anywhere in California. There's a, there's a handful left, which is really cool, but Homewood is, has staked its claim on the West Shore, and it it happens to be in a spot that I just sort of call the honey hole of the, of the West shore. I mean, it snows a lot there and it oftentimes beats, you know, projections and forecasts and the storms kind of ball up right against the crest there, like right below Ellis peak. And, uh, it gets a lot of snow. So it's a lot of locals and people listening will know it as a fantastic place to go on a storm day, right? It doesn't get wind hold very often. It's just low enough, but when the storms do set up over there, it can just sit there and just puke. And you got tr- beautiful gladed tree runs. It's like some of the best tree skiing in the lake. And um, just an incredible, incredible place. Slow chairs, you know, funky. Sometimes you sit for <laughs> longer than you think anyone should on a chair. Like, what's <laughs> actually going on? Like, are we getting ready? You know, and last year there was a big rescue where they took them till 7 o'clock to get everyone off the chairs. Oh, no. But that, that's part of it. Um, the bar that's at the base is like one of the best. It's crusty and, and throwback and it's just got a good feel to it. It's kind of gritty. Um, and everybody's there just has like a really, it's the vibe. I feel like more than anything, it still has that, like, let's just get out and shred and have fun and high five a stranger and, yep. you know, buy, yeah. buy a beer for the guy behind you in line just for the hell of it kind of thing. It's, it's that type of, place. I think that's so, why people know. are, are afraid of losing something there because the, it, they're afraid of losing that vibe and, totally. and they're afraid of losing the vibe. I think hurt, you sort of, you know, cued into it, but it's because, you know, a company's come in and bought in Homewood now, and they're they're attempting to turn it into somewhat of a pri- private resort. Yeah, I mean, to to be clear, the the place has been losing money for yeah. quite some time, and it's privately owned, which makes it unique in the basin, in that it's not on a national forest lease. Oh, so, I didn't know that. The yeah, whole mountain is privately yeah, owned. That's right. Oh. So it's developable. They have this long term uh, plan that they've been working through all of the hoops to be able to approve, you know, building of homes because of the view, right? So that's what it comes down to. It has the best view, arguably, of anywhere on the lake. And um, so that, that made it quite, um, you know, uh, it looks good for an outside developer because you can build homes and that have an incredible view and you've got a mountain there. Yeah. So I don't know, it's complicated. Yellowstone Club based in Big Sky, uh, Montana, where I actually just was this last month to do a wine dinner, which was crazy. It was a full 1% experience. And, um, but I'm glad I at least I got get, get behind the gates and, and get up there and destroy some of the pristine powder that was, was left so... on that mountain. Cause there's only like a hundred <laughs> people on the mountain on any given time. So it was pretty sweet. Uh, I'm uh, sure it was never the same after you, after Ric Flair came we through. We had a good crew. We did, we did it justice. There's some shredders there, but there's only a handful, you know? Um, so any of them that are listening that I don't want to slight them cause there are some, uh, there are some serious, uh, locals there too, but, um, it's a different world. And so I think the West shore is uh, going to be fundamentally changed when this development does come to fruition, but it's going to take some time. So that's what everyone's talking about that 
Yeah. It's, you know, they got to build homes, they got to put in roads, they got to, you know, they're starting with the gondola first thing. They're taking down the Madden chair um, this summer and putting in a gondola to the For, top. It's happening. Yeah. It's going to happen. Yeah, they're already, the building is already happening. And if you go there right now, you'll see in the south side of the north lot they're already the infrastructure is already going in for the base for the gondola so it's 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 happening so i have a question about that because i i'm a been a long time pass holder at sugar bowl and sugar bowl is kind of like i tell people you know it's kind of like a a country club like a skiing country club that's open to the public so the mountain is owned and and kind of funded and operated by the homeowners in the village and in order to make that thing float financially, they have to open it to the public because otherwise it just does, the numbers don't work. Are we talking so much money at Homewood that they don't even need to be open to the public to be able to make this thing work financially? That, that's a million dollar question right there. And it sounds like it's like a $200 million dollar question. It, 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 yeah, or, right, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, it's a, it's a half a million dollar buy-in and then it's a 200, yeah. Um, no, so that's what everyone's talking about. And that's when you get when you jump on the lift at Homewood right now, every single person you talk to has a little bit of a different story about what that's going to look like. Yeah. And, um, you know, the plan wow. is they have approval for something like 160 homes or something like that, like a lot, right? That are going to sell for massive amounts of money, but it's yeah. going to take years to develop those. So are those homes uh, going to be so, like responsible for helping fund the operation of the mountain? From, from yeah, what I'm I sure. understand. It's, it's, like yeah. a, it's like a membership item. Yeah, yeah. totally. So, so, but it's still, and you go to the Yellowstone Club in, in Montana and, you know, it's all state of the art, all the, all the lifts and they're all fully staffed. I mean, there's people there to carry your skis. There's like, you know, it's ridiculous. Uh, and there's only 200 people on the mountain or whatever. And you're like, how is this possible? You're like, okay, well, it's because the buy-in is huge. And then, and then dues, you know, every year as well. So somehow they've got it. I don't, I don't understand that part of it, but I'm sure there's someone that you can interview that will be able to give well, you some good info. I just read this road, book so. called Billionaire Wilderness and it's super interesting. And it talks about, um, so this professor, he's a Yale, Yale professor who's a younger guy and grew up in Wyoming, actually grew up like super poor and just made something of himself. So he had like this kind of unprecedented access to the ultra wealthy because he was a Yale professor from Wyoming. So like all the high dollar people in Wyoming and Montana were like, oh, this guy, like we want to hang out with him. Right. So he talks about the Yellowstone Club. He talks about like just the lifestyle of Jackson mm -hmm. and just like the, and he gets unprecedented access to these billionaires, like interviews them, go to the, goes to their homes, goes to the Yellowstone Club, gets to ski. And he talks about how it was the loneliest experience he's ever had. Mm -hmm. Like he was on that mountain and he's like, there was nobody there. Yeah. I was the only one going down this mountain, this Sounds massive fantastic. resort. And yeah, like, yeah, but it was a lot is like, send me out there. I'm like, I, I'm doing, I'm figure, trying to figure out like, it's, it sounds like the caddy shack of pow. And I'm like, how do I get to be that someone's caddy? Right. Yeah. And you know, so here's the thing that really I'm, I'm concerned about with Homewood is that, you know, in this guy's book, um, he talks about how the ultra wealthy have lost this connection to normal people, mm -hmm. normal life. And they're desperately trying to make a reconnection to normal people. So like when like the ultra wealthy in Jackson, a lot of people say you can't tell a difference between a billionaire and just like your day laborer because the billionaires just wear jeans and cowboy boots and a hat to fit in. Mm -hmm. And they talk about how they're best friends with, you know, their like house cleaner or like their ski guide or, or this or that. But in reality, you ask the other side of the table and they go, I mean... Yeah, I'm an acquaintance, but they pay me, and it's a transactional thing. I'm not yeah. their best friend. 
in my eyes. But in the rich person's eyes, they're like, no, I'm friends with them because they don't have any normal friends. They just have ultra wealthy friends. So when I look at Homewood, if they shut that thing down to the public, man, it's going to be this ultra exclusive country club for nothing but super rich people. And they're going to lose all connection to the community. Right. And that's, that's why really they sad. need a. That's and, why they need a powder caddy. And, so I'll, you know, bring, bring them, bring them back to being in not, touch with reality a little bit. Yeah, yeah, and you know, they haven't traditionally in the last ten years. I mean, I, you could get numbers, but you know, they sell somewhere in the in the neighborhood of a thousand, twelve hundred passes a year. Mm-hmm. Is that right? it? Yeah. So it's not that many, right? So it has not wow. been sustainable. So, you know, it's it's easy to sit around and kind of like whine about this being taken over by. A bunch of billionaires and but you know the reality is is that it's if it's not penciling it's not sustainable something has to happen so we're in this we're in this sort of tough place where well if this is the solution um i hope they do it right and i hope they keep selling those 1200 passes to all of us on the west shore who have been going there forever and there's i'm not the only one that's that's echoing this sentiment i mean you see the stickers now right say uh save home keep 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 homewood uh, public well why would he so if if Homewood's only selling 1,200 passes a year, with how many passes that are being sold at Altera and, and Vail, I got to imagine if they up and they're on private so they can operate as many people or as many, sell as many passes as they want, why wouldn't they just sell more passes and just go like on a marketing blitz? Nobody can get there. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. We're back to the traffic talk. Yeah. That's well, then part, how are the rich going to the get there? They can't helicopter well, they're, in. They're, they're, they're just going to live there. They're They'll living just, there. They're yeah. living. But yeah, this winter, that'd be interesting. But that, it's part of the magic. <laughs> I mean, like nobody, nobody wants to crush the 89, you know, corridor to, and then make it all the way out. To, I mean, it's, it's just, it's been, they're sort of landlocked a little bit, right? Yeah. So it's like, it's like this little, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a poor man's country club for the West shore right now. And in, in a way it's like, right. okay, sweet. Like, I leave my house by Gronlebachen, and it's like eight minute drive down to Homewood. Yep. I see three cars on the way there. It's amazing. I love it, but I know it's not forever. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. But I'm working hard to be the wine sponsor, whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> we'll make some. We'll make some side plonk, and yeah, uh, you know, like fill yeah. their kegs or whatever it is. Yeah, whatever it is. Just but, keep your claws in you know, however yeah, you can do. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I had a question for you. You mentioned earlier that I thought is super interesting. Um, talk to us a little bit about the connection between the bicycle yeah. and wine in your life. So, like, how did that evolution happen? You Did you get into bikes when you were really young and you just started exploring and touring around on your bicycle? And then you, by nature, being in the dirt and in the woods, you just got into, like, viticulture? That, that, that's pretty – yeah, I mean, that's a – pretty logical progression i mean right you're out there you're in it um and this this you know the um the beauty of wine is that it likes to grow good wine in places with rolling hills and near the coast and in the mountains and a lot of times places where grapes are grown are really good places to ride bikes so whether you're talking about piedmont in italy or you know burgundy in france or the rhone valley or the Alps and Switzerland and, you know, and Germany and all, you know, these places are, are, are hilly agrarian communities that are gorgeous and idyllic and beautiful. Mm -hmm. They lend themselves really well to, to riding bikes. And so there's sort of just a natural, um, interplay there, but yeah, growing up in Napa and riding bikes first, but being surrounded by wine and then just sort of having it click naturally. And then I'm really into geology too. I love it. And I, I'm really interested in just how things were formed and when, and and then that informs a lot of decisions when it comes to viticulture, like what kind of 
you know plants that you you put in what variety and and then you look at weather and you know the the, the interplay of all of that and it, there's just so much overlap yeah it's really yeah. it's really fun so and it's it traveling for to go learn more about wine always bring the bike you know go to france yeah go yeah. ride in the morning yeah go cruise around and then in the afternoon set up a couple appointments taste some wine ask a bunch of questions you know it's a really cool it's a cool uh combo for sure and when and when did you get your first mountain bike i think it was 87 and it was a schwinn high sierra at the oh. local remember when there were schwinn shops those were classics dude that's yeah. ned overend used to race the schwinn high sierra back, had, way had back the, in the had day the, like super beefy um stem yeah v-shaped shape stem and it had riser bars on it which is crazy at the time aluminum riser bars mm-hmm. um roller cam you know cantilever brakes and yeah. the thing was sweet and uh, there was a Schwinn shop in Napa at the uh-huh. time, right? I mean, they still, I mean, when I bought that bike, you could still get like a Stingray with like the oh, yeah. banana seat, yeah, like yeah. a brand new one, like in the oh, shop. That's you know? so cool. Um, that's so, so we cool. would, we, we got, when we figured out that that was something that we, uh, my, when I say we, just a couple of my buddies that I grew up with, and we would just take those things and ride them as far as we could up the old fire roads and the hills behind our house and then push them the rest of the way. And then, uh, you know, no, no toe clips or straps or anything and just like cut off jeans and, hiking boots and fanny pack you know all that and just yeah. blast and just get sketchier and sketchier and like drop the seat at the top and like just shred no high know? ride like yeah no not i mean those came eventually eventually we tried oh, all was, the things you know like pre-height ride yeah yeah pre-height <laughs> ride yeah totally and uh no those were those were yeah those were high tech at the time but no it was, it was fun it was a good way to learn because you just and we were running like 45 psi and like oh, you know God, like yeah. 1.95 tires and like then i remember oh, yeah. the, the farmer john and like the tomac tires came out with the farmer john and the farmer uh-huh. john's cousin came out yeah the tioga and the tires, tioga tires and yeah. those were like game changer because there was some lug you know some uh-huh. meat and then uh, and then we started experimenting with a little lower pressure and then like it was just rabbit hole so yeah. you know that was that was a really fun way to start it um and i've just been in ever since you know like riding a bike through the mountains through the woods on single track is to me, you know, arguably one of the best feelings on in the world. Yeah. Yeah. It still is. It's your core thing. It's like my, more it's my than core s- thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. cause it's where I live in Sonoma County, it's year round, you yeah. know, and I've been, I've been riding just this last week. It's been a lot of debris down and trees down and stuff, but it's just amazing and it's just worth it. And, and, uh, you know, you, you get that same feeling. I feel like, uh, you know, on, on a snowboard and on skis, I love to ski as well. So I just, I don't, I don't discriminate. I do you ski much. Yeah. Oh, you yeah. do? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah, it's fun. I know. Palbot's just glaring at me across the good table. <laughs> I only I love know. It. I, don't, I only know yeah. him as Ric Flair. Yeah, yeah. No, it's fun. But, yeah, no, it's fun. It's cool. The the overlap with wine and and with with biking is really is really real. And all around the world, you can find vineyards planted in places where it's just really fun to go ride. To. So, Dunk, with your with your profession, then. How many days a year do you think you get on a bike and go for a good ride? Oh man, you know you can you can balance that one. Yeah, it it, like. it's funny. I I I don't do Strava. I did Strava a little bit right in the beginning, um, and then realized that it was just not for me. I don't think it's for everybody. I think it's the best yep. way to, to, to. I just had to unplug from it. It was it was distracting me. It was taking me in different directions. Um, emotionally <laughs> probably more than anything well you can you, know? you can do it like johnny bendon Tra- you can, track it with a calendar it, again it's just like one 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 more thing to like have me oh, looking yeah. at a screen and stuff and so i'm kind of like i i do try to make a conscious effort in my life to um at any turn where i can minimize screen time for myself mm-hmm. i try to and uh we all we all are immersed in it 
already and so it's just one more layer for me so i i don't do that but i uh, so i can't give you i can't give you a solid number but the best way to look at it is just by the week i mean like i ride my bike almost every day during yeah. the year and there's you know there's windows of of work that keep me from it especially during harvest um but even if i just ride my bike to the winery from my house i still feel like a, it's a win yeah um and I was telling Kurt, I'm I'm a I'm a late adopter on tech, and uh, but I do have an e-bike now that adds just that one more tool in your in your toolbox, and I love it. I mean, after like a a ten hour day in the cellar working on concrete, smoked, come home, could easily just crack a beer and put my feet up. But I see that bike, and it's like, well, you know what? That's I'm just gonna go out. I might as well go out. And get outside yeah, and, and get, then I get out, and then yeah. I get, and then I end up going bigger than you know. It's it's great. I love it. So it's like that little bit of extra motivation, and it's. You know, my dad, my 82-year-old dad has one, and I go out riding with him all the time. It's awesome. I mean, they're they're incredible. So yeah. they're, I know there's a lot of hate out there, but I think they're getting more and more um, folded into the, to the uh, sort of conversation, and it's just just another tool in the in the yeah. box, you know. So. Well, I mean, I I think what I take away from that is that you get out daily. Yeah, and that's yeah, good, yeah. good on you. Exactly. Even if it's just, I mean, I feel like you know. I raced for years and I was really focused on my hours and my training and my, you know, per, you yep. know, periodization and like all this stuff, you know, like really like base season and all that. And I loved it. It was great. Uh, and now I'm just like, you know, just get on the bike every day, even if it's for around the block or even if it's just, you know, up onto my local trails that it's an hour, hour loop, just go do it and keep it part of your life, you know, every day. Yeah. You, do you race much anymore? Not really. No, I mean, I do some events, um, each year and I don't know, I, I, after years of racing, um, I kind of, I never thought that I would just kind of go cold turkey on it, but uh, I'm not racing. Uh, but I'm kind of here now uh, in that place, and uh, uh, I think I am going to do the Skyline Park Mountain Bike Race uh, next month, so I'm nice. excited for that. That's yeah. a good one. Yeah, it's, it's fun to, like, throw something on your calendar to, like, train for, but I just enjoy the bike so much, and, and uh, I feel super fortunate um, that I was able to race at the time that I did, and I went to... A school and had great time in collegiate and then raced professionally for a couple of years but on a steel hardtail mm-hmm. uh, for Soulcraft bikes out of Petaluma and oh, so yeah. kind of right before things really took off with technology and bikes so you know 26 inch wheels you know Sid 80 mil fork and, surviving you know, the downhill like, not yeah, smashing yeah, it. yeah. Doing, doing downhyville all mountain <laughs> on a hardtail you know like so um yeah it's yeah. good it's kind of fun to be to like look back and be like ah those those are the t-. and there were guys before us that were doing it on even lower tech rigs than oh, that. Yeah. but uh i mean when v-brakes got invented man that was like whoa that was next level huge you know? step that, up. that's kind of when i got into it so let me ask you guys did you guys ever race each other <sighs> not hmm. much you know what's funny though that so when did you graduate from fort lewis uh, 1999. Okay, dude, we raced collegiate at the same time, so we definitely were you. Did you did you go to collegiate nationals in Reno in '98? Yes, I was there. Yeah, there you go. And Remember we, the we snowstorm? Yes, and we got canceled out up on the mountain, oh, so my we had to go God, down and race. Dude. Yeah, yeah. So I was going to Indiana University, and we flew out to Reno's oh, yeah. my first time ever to Reno, and uh, we stayed at the Reno Hilton, which is now the GSR. Yeah, and um, we were there too in November. The UNR mountain bike team decided they were going to have the mountain bike cross-country race at Sky Tavern. What the hell do you think happened in November at Sky Tavern? It dumped. It dumped, dude. It dumped like it was a blizzard. Do you remember? We were all in that lodge sitting there, like waiting waiting for them to call the race off. Just like sitting there like, is this going to really happen? Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. So we did race together. We were at the same event before we knew each other. Yeah. Yeah. So totally. then, we, then we went down into that that basically sagebrush strewn like yeah, mud hidden, bog. Yeah, hidden valley. 
I, I double flatted. I was like, I was like sitting top 15 and like halfway through the race, having the race of my life. And I double flatted in freaking goat heads, dude. I was just like, oh, I wrapped my chain around my cogs and my <laughs> crank in front and broke it off completely. So I have I mechanical in the first like 15 minutes. So yeah, it was, a, that was not a, that was a long drive home to Durango from that. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah, so racing, classic, racing dude. collegiately, and you know, I was on on the Fort Lewis team, and we we were, I was, I barely made the A team, we'll call it that. So I was on the bubble, but I got to take part in like winning national championships a couple years out in Kentucky. Yeah, you guys were Carrollton, dynamo, Kentucky, man. Todd Wells was on our team, and yep. Tom Danielson eventually, and um, it it was it was a cool thing, you know, like it really lit the fire for me. I had a really good coach, Keith Darner, uh, who's still in Durango. Shout out to Keith; he's just an incredible guy. Um, help foster like the stoke in so many kids, like a coach that was like in it for the right reasons was like demanding and like required us to do all the training and to do everything, but kept it super fun, you know, and just like, and that's now what I'm trying to give back with my kids and yeah. you know, my, my sister. Yeah. Let's talk about her. your sister for yeah, a second because about... she's like, man, like talk about making an impact on the sport. Yeah. Yeah. So Vanessa Hoswald, my sister is a, uh, executive director of the Northern California High School Mountain Bike League. And she has been for uh, 15 years, I think. Um, so she's, their mission, getting more kids on bikes. And that the explosion in the sport at that level, that junior level, has a lot to do with uh, high school racing. And that's just so proud of her. She's my hero. She's a incredible person, you know, cancer survivor and just a bright light. She's, she's, uh, she's inspiration, I think, for a lot of people that know her and for a lot of the kids in the league. And it's just so cool. You go to one of these events now. I mean, there's like 2,000 people. There. You go to it's Six incredible. I mean, next coming up is Six Sigma Ranch. You go there. Yeah. It's literally like 2,000 people. It's bigger than any wow. other, anything going on in, in mountain bike racing right now. Totally. Domestically. I mean, yep. it, it makes like the UC, you know, like the, the whatever, the, the you USA know, cycling. USA cycling stuff look like yeah. very small. Right yeah. Now. And they so, positively impact so many kids' so lives in that, in, in that way that they do that. So many. And it gives kids, you know, I look at it as, as, as I think you guys do, cycling is such a lifetime sport, right? Like, I love sports in general, but uh, cycling is something you can just do. Like I said, my dad, he's 82, still rides every day. You know, it's like, a, you know, you, you play basketball, like, eh, you know, like, unless you're pretty motivated and have a good group, like, you're, you're, you're timing out on that. You know, yeah. same, for, you know, yeah. most ball and stick sports, I call them. But, you know, like, uh, it's cycling, a, it's a lifetime thing. It's yeah. the fountain of youth. It, it, it totally the bicycles have found youth. I've met so many people. I think probably a prime example who you're good friends with than I am too. And all three of us is Scott Nickel. Yeah. The founder of Ibis. Oh yeah. Like that guy, you know, he is he's 65, probably 67 going on like 25. Yeah. Dude. He, unbelievable. So fit. And yeah. he's just, yeah. all he's done is ride a bike. Yeah. He just rides bikes. I, I ride with Scott all the time. He's one of my closest friends and he is a, a huge inspiration to me and yeah. just gets on the bike every day and just loves it, has fun. And the guy shreds. I mean, it is, he is, he's it, it, huge yeah. inspiration. So yeah, I mean, it's cool to see it growing at that, at that grassroots. I won't even call it grassroots. I mean, it's super organized. The, the high school league is like, those races are run tight. I mean, um, they are pushing the kids, but they're like, They've got their their guardrails up so that they're it's safe and you know there's there's you know people get hurt it's a dangerous sport too but uh, yeah it's just run so well I'm I'm really impressed with what that organization has done in in a relatively short period of time for our sport yeah so you're how old are you now are you fifty yeah fifty I turned fifty I'm a seventy two baby so I'll be I'll be fifty one this year yep 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 and how are you we and we were talking actually with Darren uh, Darren Ralphs a couple weeks ago. 
just like, you know, his transition from being this super competitive ultra athlete to more about just the kind of the soul side of being outside and, and exploring and just, you know, enjoying time in nature. Um, and it sounds to me like, I mean, I'm definitely on that track. I've kind of, like you said, I've pretty much stopped racing, but it sounds like you're kind of on that track too. You kind of backed off from racing. You found things that are maybe more valuable to you and your time. Like what do you, what do you, what do you see in, in when you ride your bike nowadays versus like training to win a race? What, what's the objective? Yeah. Um, man, it's a great question. Um, I think I would back up a little bit and just say with, with both biking and, and with, um, touring and, and being in the backcountry, it's, it's the connection to the outdoors, the, which I naturally love and I can get by myself, but it's the sharing it with others. And it's the, the stoke mm -hmm. that you share and like the time on the skin track where you're talking and things are just freely flowing. Um, you know, that this, this will lead nicely into talking about Ice Creek Lodge up in the, in the Kootenay Mountains, some, a place that I value deeply and have been going to for 10 years. And, um, it is a time to appreciate nature, but you appreciate it maybe even more with a group and just sharing free associating and just talking and things come naturally. And, you know, it's something that I found with, with Palbot that we've, we've shared over the years, which is incredible. You just get out there and things, sort of the layers of life sort of peel away yep. and you get this true connection. And, you know, there's a lot of research too that has shown re in recently that the time spent sharing your thoughts and being heard and hearing other people brings health benefits that are really hard to get anywhere else. And you may think that, oh, I, I need to maximize my time on the bike and make sure my heart rate's in a certain zone and all that. And for me, that was a certain time in my life. For me now, that's much less important than being in that flow state with people that I care about mm -hmm. and listening and, yeah. and, and being heard. And being present And being moment. present because you take away from that this incredible cup-filling energy that is really hard to get elsewhere, especially in this world of like connectivity and noise and you know like yeah. a lot of distraction and all that and when those layers get stripped away and you get to share and it might not be you kind of go into it i think just open and you get more out of it that way like if you go into it with an agenda yeah, i think that that sort of puts um it puts uh, shackles on you a little bit you just sure. go into it open let things flow and man it, it can really bring i think as much benefit as going out and doing intervals you know for a while so. Those, yeah. the, the, the magic days in the mountains are when you go into it with an open page yeah. and, you know, you sort of have an objective, but you have an open mind to sort of what, you know, what evolves. And, and that's really when you have those amazing days in the mountains. Yeah. As long as you keep your shit tight. <laughs> well, let's talk about ice then a little bit because, you know, Kurt, you know, part of the show is, you know, I think that, you know, Kurt and I are out adventuring around on a, on a pretty regular basis and we didn't record for a couple of weeks because I, I bounced and had had my annual trip up to British Columbia to Ice Creek, where Duncan and I actually met. Uh, we originally met actually in the Spokane airport the very first time, uh, because I, I loved that place so much after my first trip up there uh, that I ended up meeting John Paluska at my bar in, in downtown Truckee after I came back from that trip and was kind of spraying about how good this trip was. And, and I, you know, little did I know that Paluska had actually helped fund the lodge and had known Russell for quite some time. 
uh, you know, the, the stories of him, he was Fish's manager. So for some of our listeners out there, you know, there's, there's some neat podcasts to go back and listen to uh, that Paluska was on about Fish and how they really revolutionized, you know, the, the, the music industry and particularly uh, the modern music festival. Paluska had a big hand in, in, you know, sort of creating what is now known as the modern music festival. But anyway, I met Paluska at the bar and was spraying about this trip. And he was like, well, hold on a minute. What, where were you? And, you know, boom, that led into me getting an invite with those guys the following year. And I, you know, I loved the place so much that I was willing to roll the dice <laughs> and sort of go up there with a group of people from the Bay Area that I didn't know. I didn't care. I was like, I just want to go back to Ice Creek and walk around on the Alpine. Yeah. You know, and that's that, that was kind of my take on that trip. And so I ended up flying up there uh, and meeting, you know, Duncan and his whole crew from from Santa Rosa in the Bay and, and Palooska and went in and got to experience Ice Creek with, with that crew. And uh, just, you know, had, had, you know, one of those life-changing experiences. And, you know, I just had to go back again this year. And that, we're, that's we're, where that nickname came from, too. Like, yeah, a, few so days, a few days into it, we're just try. I mean, we're, we have, it was a charging, you know, a strong crew. And, and a, a, you know, everybody's everybody's excited to be there. We had incredible we conditions. Had good, we had good conditions. Really, really good. And um, Tom, like a metronomic step up the skin track and just, I think we were sitting around at dinner at one point, like maybe day two and, uh, and Kevin Corcoran looks over and he's like, he's like, man, he's like, you're like just some sort of like powder robot or something. He just like, just stomp up that track. Like every, he's like, both you guys, he's like, you guys are like freaks, you know, like looking at Tom and I, you know, and I'm like, yeah, well, I'm just following this guy who I just met who I can tell is frothing to slash first lines on everything and so I was right there you know we were back and forth on who was going to drop first of course it's just part of the fun um but immediately like that the name Palbot just stuck it was like yep this guy right here Palbot (laughs) must tread pal like just (laughs) cyborg Uh, oh my god part man part powder destroying robot <laughs> programmed to yeah so in any case that's sort of where it came origin from. story right yeah, there yeah. wow he, you know Duncan, Duncan, he's got away with words and he you know he, he nailed that one and when i came back and told my wife that that's what the name that i came out of that trip with she was like well that's pretty appropriate because i've been married to you and that's definitely that's definitely you and and then she told me i should go get the license plate and the rest is history but uh I was going to yeah. say, and, and the license plate, when you moved from uh, California to Nevada, yeah. um, he signed his California license plate before he had to put his Nevada plates on and handed it off to my daughter, who was, I don't know, at the time, uh, quite young, and she had, still has it on her wall. So oh, just that's so bot, cool, The California Powbot sticker. Yeah. Is Hell a, yeah. yeah I, I, I signed it to, to Ionia. Yeah. Keep shredding. Keep shredding. That's so cool, yeah. man. Keep shredding. And yeah. then Duncan told me this rad story about when they were doing the remodel in their home, and you know they, they had to move in with Grandpa and Grandma for a bit. And he had to tell her that she, she could only take a couple things from her room. <laughs> and she took the old Pilebot plate. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but and anyway. She's incredible, now. She's, man. she's 12 years old now, and she just shreds. And home, I have home oh, to so thank cool. for that. And, uh, and uh, the that stoke so that has cool. been spread. Well, thanks for the origin yeah. stories. Yeah. I, I think it's pretty funny that Kurt and I are rocking this podcast with our Instagram monikers. You know, uh, it's just it's funny how we, you know, have this, have this ulterior you know, alternate life that we live, you know, we have a professional life, but then there's this outdoor moniker that we both carry. 
So it's cool that Duncan got to share that one. Um, and you never get to pick your you never get to pick your nickname. You don't. And and Duncan, people pick yeah, it for you. People yeah, pick yeah, it for exactly. you for yeah. sure. And Duncan has a way way with that one. But yeah, I'll, I'll I'll get back to ice a little bit. You know, this trip this year, you know, we we went up there with a pretty solid crew from Tahoe. Uh, we got good conditions. It was pretty wild to sort of see the sort of state of of you know, it's kind of I. Not quite. It's shell shock almost, and 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 how that R- Russell, you know, you were there earlier in the year, Duncan, and when we got there, the snowpack had finally stabilized, and you know they they were still in like a little bit of a shell shock situation from their season. And Canada had just an absolutely just horrendous snowpack uh, for a majority of the season. Russell told stories of that it almost sounded like that, you know. Uh, they were going to get shut shut down at one point because the snowpack was so bad. The Canadian government in BC was talking about actually shutting down all the heli operations and wow. and the HUD operations. How often does that happen? It's never, never. happened. He it's, said it's the worst. That was the worst. It's Holy it's it's, ne- it's never happened. Wow. So you know they were navigating you know a hard year of of snowpack and you know they were doing their you know they were doing an incredible job keeping their guests safe and still having a good time. But you know on the heels of COVID, they did not want to lose another year. Because the nightmare of pushing all the trips the following year, and then it's mm-hmm. you know got to give back deposit. I, I can't imagine. So you know they didn't have to do that, but you know I can't remember what he said. But they had dug like 150 or 160 profiles in the first two and a half months of the season. If you do the math on that, that's that's two full pits a day. Yeah. You know it sounded like they were having to basically dig a pit to just to ski a run. You know if if they wanted to get into somewhere where they weren't comfortable with skiing. So it's it, they were a little shell shocked, but. You know, things. It was special for us because things had sort of settled down, and when we got up there, we got to open yeah. up a bunch of their, their their best runs. And you know, my analogy with that one was that it, the snowpack was so bad that you know it would be like if you know people in Tahoe hadn't skied Talak at all until the last week of March. That was kind of what the scenario was, and so you know things had just settled down. We got we got sixteen inches or so, you know, of, of feather goose down convective Kootenai blower. And it's, 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 that was a weird one up there because the first day it was like skiing in Utah, you know, we we were still skiing on the bottom surface, Mm -hmm. which us, you know, everyone in Tahoe, we were, we were, we were kind of all over the place. We were falling and, and it was a little, you know, I'd call it slippery Mm -hmm. just because we're, we're so used to a little denser snow here. And we'd had such a wild season that all these chargers came up to BC and we're like wanting to ski it like, like the, like the season we had, but it was a little different snow but it was interesting to see Russell sort of navigate that and and it got better actually as the week progressed you know as that sort of convective blower settled down a little bit we we just ended up having five days of just blissful bluebird uh time in the alpine Amazing. we got to go out to the park for the or we were the first group of the year out, out in the park and skied Mephisto uh and you know had an, another two days in the park uh, all skiing north terrain and it was just a to me that the thing that really resonated with me was just the, the the quietness and the wilderness the power of wilderness yeah. and on this trip because we didn't have any wind the last four days was just dead calm and you know we we had these just amazing days in the alpine and just the power of of the quietness just really resonated with me and i think that too and i've had such a busy year that you know being able to turn off the device and plug back into that kind of you know, experience was, was really powerful to me. Yeah. Uh, and that was the highlight for me for the trip. Yeah. That, that place is, is so unique in it, in its location, but also in its, uh, in its power, um, 
of its solitude. You know, it's it, it, it's yep. interesting how it's one of the one of the few lodges that doesn't have any overlapping heli uh, tenure. Yeah, and it's right on the border of the Valhalla Provincial Park. So you get up into that park, and you know, there's there's no motorized anything anywhere. There's no helis flying around. There's nothing. You know, yep. you're out there. And the light pollution is nil. It's incredible. The sound pollution is nil. Yeah. Uh, and you're there with Russell Hulbert, who is, you know, I, I, I think of him as like the Yoda of the Kootenay Mountains. I mean, yeah. the guy like lives in that snow and built that lodge by hand and experiencing anything in life um, with someone who's so intimately involved and so passionate. I love that. I mean, I love that about people in general. I love talking to people that are interested in whatever they're interested in at a high level is yeah. really interesting to me. I know it is for you guys, too. And Kurt, we've had so many conversations over the years about things, not just bikes and not just, you know, my old Toyotas, yeah, all, all the things, right? Like you're really into that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, old Volkswagens. Um, yeah. Um, so, and Russell's one of those examples and, it, and it going to a place like that and being in the snow every day with someone who is so, um, experienced, but so intentional, um, the, 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 the example that you gave of them digging pits like that, I mean, that's just it's just unheard of, you know, the amount of the level of diligence that they apply to their yeah. craft there is absolutely top of the game. So every time I've been there, I've just come away with it. Like this is a very rarefied experience in life to go to a place that's so far away and be so trusting and feel like you're just in such good hands with someone who's yeah. just, yeah. So for, you know, our guests out there, if, if you've never experienced a hut trip in BC, I, I highly recommend it. You know, it's, it's just, it's a really neat, experience even for experienced gears like myself that i you know we and i was with other people on this trip that can we could have completely gone up there you know unguided and sent that place but it's different when you can experience it with someone like russell like you said and it's his passion project you know to me like going up to a hut trip is it's like going to tavarua which is the best surf resort in the world like it was it's it's this place that's just so special and then it's run by people that are passionate about what they're doing and it's just a you know it's a top-notch experience yeah. Yeah. and uh you know I, for for that everything's it, it the only way you can get an experience like that i think backcountry skiing is if you go on a full expedition you know and and this is not an expedition you're getting you know there's running water there's a sauna uh, it's a little rough around the edges, but you know, and then, and then there's Hannah, Holy yeah. Hannah. So yeah. I, on, I, on that real quick, I'm just, uh, one thing that resonated with me when I was up there is I, I did a journal entry right before I left. I've got, I, there's one in the journal up there from every one of my trips. And, uh, I'll, I'll share with you, Kurt, my, my journal entry this year was the lyrics that you wrote for mine, the track. No way. Really? Yeah, I, I wrote that word for word and drew some pictures and put that in the journal, but Cool. This was the journal entry that was before our group, or it was maybe I don't know. It was it was a little bit. It's, it just says February of twenty three, but I think it just sums up like the Kootenays and this experience of, uh, of an ice creek so well. But I'm gonna read it real quick. It says, "Listen up, you fuckers." Eighty cm's of Kootenay cold smoke fell on our trip. We we got about forty, so these guys got it better than us. But either way, they said, uh, and you better believe we skied every line straight fucking down. So when I read this and I was like, oh my God, I love these guys. You know, fall line Freddy, baby. Uh, top to bottom, getting getting way more face shots than you, even Duncan. Uh, we followed, quote, the D, which is, which is one of their tail guides, uh, who's a legend, deep into the mountains. We chased the purple powder, powder pillow popper all over. I don't know who that is, but they sound fun. Uh, we, we occasionally listened to mom. 
And then this is what resonated, resonated me with about this place is, and it says, just because you can afford to be here doesn't mean you deserve to be here. Fuck around and find out. <laughs> oh no, they said that, huh? Fuck around and find out. Holy Hannah. And I, I love that quote. Oh my gosh. It was like, I read that and I was like, huh, I don't even, I, I could just basically write ditto. You should uh, just like find out who those guys are and go with them next I, year, I, right? <laughs> exactly. Yes, that's, yeah. that's, actually, that's my crew. I'm gonna oh roll with God. that crew, and and I'll give a shout out to Hannah because you know this was my first trip up there with her cooking, and I know that you have a tight connection with her, uh, Dunk, because she came down and, and you had her cook for your harvest lap. Was well, yeah, it last year? The first first meal, I, I had to play cool. I mean, the first meal that she cooked for us was like, oh my God, this is next level, and she just baked stuff from scratch in a tiny kitchen in deep in the mountains, and. I had to like wait till like day two or three before I like popped the question to see if she wanted to come and work for a couple of weeks for us down at harvest. And, uh, you know, instead of being that guy that like within five minutes, like asked her, yeah. asked her out, <laughs> uh, and she, she oh, agreed that's... and she came down and just smashed it. And we put her, we threw her into the tanks, treading grapes with us. And, she yeah. she cooked every day and she's incredible. Yeah, she so. said she got tired of the barefoot stomping by the end. Yeah, it's hard. It's real. <laughs> she said that was real work. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I'll give her a shout out, Hannah. Holy yeah. cow, she's she was so good. And I'll, I'll tell a quick story. There was a guy on our trip that was not as as sly as you were, Dunk, <laughs> on on his love of Hannah and her cooking. And I think the first night he was like, "I just want to trade you in for you know for my wife and bring you back to Truckee." <laughs> oh God. And and it was funny. And and things that came out of his mouth are always funny, and it, you know. But it 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 then went a couple more days of that, and she finally put him in his place. It got weird. It, well, yeah. Well, I don't know. She just is. She's just sharp. <laughs> yeah, she's and, in the suffer fools. Yeah, and so she like one one afternoon we came back from skiing, and 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 uh, this this guy on the trip said something, and she's like, "Well, hey, you know, how about you? I think you need some of this triactin drug that they came out with." <laughs> And he fell for it and he's like what and she's like why don't you try acting like a man <laughs> <laughs> and just put him in his place and like go oh hannah. god go hannah so anyway shout out to hannah and ice creek thank oh, you Russell. We, we we had a great trip up there and i, I can't wait to get get back up to yeah. dc so enough of that one uh well, well we'll hopefully get you up there on one of these trips kurt so you, you know this year it. just wasn't the year for me that's right. i had it was so Duncan called me back in like January or December and was like, yo, man, we got an open spot. You should come. And I was like, uh, you know, hemming and hawing. And, you know, like, I'm, I'm, I, I get it. I took the winter off from working. So I was on a fixed income for the winter. <laughs> and I'm like, ah. you know, if I had a plan for this one, I'd have totally pulled the trigger. And then when, and then, a few months later, you were like, "I know, I'm, I'm I got an open spot, carrot. man. Come on, same place. It's gonna be better." And I'm like, oh, "Shit!" And I, you know, by that point, I had ha- I've had such a good winter of skiing that you know I'm not I'm not obsessed with snow to the level Powbot is. I'm like Jonesing to dig some dirt and go ride my bike. You know, I'm like, Fuck, I'm waiting for the snow to melt a little so I can do some dual sport. And, you know, it's gonna get warm and. And so just the thought of like being in a, a backcountry lodge for a week, a helicopter ride away from civilization, I was just like, man, I just, I'm good. Next, like if it was a winter where it was like pretty bleak, like a, you know, a normal Tahoe winter where we don't get snow, I'd be yeah. like, hell yeah, let's go. <laughs> but I was like, oh man, I've skied so much. And like my gear was actually starting to, my boots were starting to fall apart. Like my feet, I was having like problems with my feet. I'm like, dude, seven days of skiing six to 7,000 vert a day. I'm going to probably come apart midweek and I just don't want to be that guy. 
Yeah, well, we'll, we'll, we'll <laughs> but we'll, next year I'll plan we'll, for we'll it. We'll dangle the carrot yeah, again. We'll be there for you next year. <laughs> yeah, there'll be a spot. But with that said, though, what you did go skiing last weekend? Yes, I did. <laughs> I did. You still have not lost the the drive. No, to, no, to no. I'm still drag. skiing. I just think it's like you know, I you know, when you're in a like a backcountry lodge for a week and everyone's going out every day skiing big every right. day. I don't want to be the one to be like, I think I'm going to take today off. Because I don't want to. Yeah. I, I want to go to go, like go the whole pole, you know, every You know, day. Russell Russell did balance this week a little bit. And that was an interesting thing on this trip is we definitely had a couple, myself included, and some a few other people. We had chargers that were wanting to do seven or eight every day. And he reeled it back just to sort of manage the group. You know, he managed the week so that we all peak at the right time. And, yeah. And, you know... By doing that, there was actually for this year for ice, I think that there was, there were some weeks or some days where we went more mileage than normal, but it, it allowed us to get into some runs that we normally don't ski. And that was kind of special. So I, and I love a big ski tour in the Alpine. So, you know, uh, trust, trust, if you go up there, trust in, if we go guided, trust in a guide that a guide is not going to bonk you by day three. No. And I, yeah. and I can, you know, I can gut it out. Like I'm not, I'm not worried about not being able to make it. Yeah. Um, you're, you're selling you are, yourself a little shorter. Yeah, dude. I know. You're, you, you are a hammerhead. So, I, but I'm just, I'm more about like, I don't know, like our, so our hut trip to Frog Lake was so awesome because it was three days. Yep. We got in there, we went big for three days, and then we, and then we were out. And it was like ski in, ski out, back home in an hour. It was awesome. And we yeah, stayed I, a world class hut. It was amazing. It wasn't quite an hour. It took us like a half hour just to dig the car out when we got that, Well, yeah, that's true. Yeah. That is true. But yeah, I mean, for me, it, it was like a bite-sized hut trip. You yeah. know what I mean? Yep. And I've never done a hut trip before. So I want to be able to kind of ease into that to like understand the dynamic instead of just like being thrown headfirst into it. I mean, I get thrown headfirst into stuff like riding dirt bikes and snowmobiles and stuff. And I don't know, like you learn quicker, but I also yeah. like to just kind of bite-size things to you know, ramp up. Yeah. And like, and get more confident with each mission. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, but yeah, like, so I'll, year. I'll bring up the fact that you ramped me up then last weekend. How? Well, that was so you, you popped my cherry a little bit. I, I have not done Man, it. Man, we're not that close, I are know, we? I know. <laughs> but I mean, we just, we're only episode six, bro. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I, I've somehow been able to avoid sled access skiing for a lot oh. of, for a lot of years okay there we and go. we mentioned it you know we talked about it in some of the, yeah. our first recordings and yep, i was like yep. oh maybe now that i know you and we're hanging out like you'll get me out there and that you know our our weekend uh is that the most time you ever spent on a sled uh in the last 10 years yes yeah man it, it would have paid him in a fly on the wall for that one. <laughs> he was kind of digging it man he yeah. was just like riding passenger uh, like you know I, hey and i think i did okay you I, did I mean, great I, I got thrown in the mix we didn't tip over we didn't tip over uh, no nope. he actually yeah you kind of dumped me at the at, when we got back to the parking lot uh, oh yeah why well, did that happen I, I don't know i just that was like perfect timing i thought you jumped off on purpose because we were at the parking lot, but you actually, I guess, accidentally came off the I sled came right off at the, the parking lot. And <laughs> did one of those, like when you come off your skateboard with speed wobbles and you start, you know, running real fast. Right, right. But I did it in my, <laughs> in my heart. In your heart But I had to run it out. And I, somehow or another, I didn't end up in my face. But yeah, I'll, I'll give you a shout out and say thanks for, you know, turning me on to some sled sled access skiing. We had a great uh, weekend. We rallied out to, to Kingston, Nevada. 
and yeah. spent some time Narvada. Uh, in Narvada. Spent some time in you know your I think one of your favorite zones. It is man. Let's the talk. About, let's, why don't you tell us a little bit about about where we were and what what we were doing out there. Yeah, we were in this dead middle in Nevada, the Toyabe Range. It's uh, the longest mountain range in Nevada, 130 miles long. It's got more 10,000-foot peaks than any other mountain range in Nevada. Um, and there's this little outpost called Kingston, about 200 full-time residents, um, right at the base of uh, Bunker Hill, which is an 11,500-foot peak. Uh, incredible, looking straight up at it. And, uh, yeah, you know, I've been uh actually uh, you've skied out there for a while yeah um only i've been riding my bike out there longer than i've been skiing out okay. there and duncan's brother-in-law yuri Hoswald mm-hmm. introduced me and chris brown um introduced me to the uh toyabi and uh first rode the toyabi crest trail in 2016 and um yeah i just fell in love with the toyabi the utter remoteness and how small you feel on the planet and just how beautiful it is and how you know i think a lot of people write off Nevada's desert, but Nevada's anything but um, in the ranges. It's it's got the same kind of terrain and beauty as a place like Utah or Idaho or you know like Colorado even Montana. Montana. Colorado. Yeah, the, like it the just, upper bowls that we were sort of in on the second day it really felt like sort of yeah you know the ten mile range in Colorado to me. Yeah, like the San Juans. There's that Bunker Hill, that south face of Bunker Hill looks like something out of the San Juans. There's yeah. a giant mine a third of the way up the mountain. And then there's this huge apron that runs all the way with like scree field rock, you know, like running all the way up to 11,000 feet. And yeah, it's just a, it's a special place. Um, there's not many people there. Um, the people that are there are super cool. They're all there <laughs> for the same reasons to get the hell away from people, you know, and that's my, my thing. I like just being solitude. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so a uh, handful of years ago, um, skied there. Actually, I think the first time I skied there was actually right at the no start of COVID. Um, my so friend, not Matt, that long ago. Yeah, Fran, my friend Matt Francis, who you met last weekend, um, he's had a house out there for a long time, an old school Squaw Valley guy, and um, he lives in Reno and go, was out there. Just they lived out there. The whole family was out there for like a couple months. During you know, COVID. During COVID. They just okay. bailed on Reno and they were at their place in Kingston. And uh, so I met him out there. Um, I was on a month long RV road trip. I just did the four wheel drive conversion on the Sun Raider and took it up to BC and did the Powder Highway and all that and literally came back into the States like three days before the border closed. And, um, you know, everything shut down. All the resorts were closed. So I was like, well, this is a perfect time to ski in Nevada. So I hit the Rubies, East Humboldt, like, Went, um, cool. did a solo mission on terminal cancer and then went down to the Toyabi for a few days and skied with Francis. And I was just like, man, this place is amazing. Like it's just lines everywhere right out of Kingston. Yeah. Like the, the Kingston Canyon <clears throat> provided as really good access Yeah, uh, for people who maybe want to go, go there this spring. Uh, I think that the road to the lake I'd say is going to be melted out. In oh, for sure. A week. And yeah. then from there, it's just an incredible access point to go to go ski any aspect that you want. No, you're going to be able to park. What's really cool is that you're going to you're going to be able. And most years you can you can drive up the canyon, um, and park and ski right from your truck. Um, this past winter was not the case. We were sledding from the mouth of the canyon and would still mm-hmm. be, but they plowed the road. Yeah, so I don't think you're going to be able to. Um, ride a sled up to the lake anymore after this week. We got the kind of the last licks on riding a sled from the mouth of the canyon. It was getting real dirty. I was like running my 
my freaking carbides down on my skis. So yeah, from now, uh, from now on out, drive up to Groves Lake and then ski from Groves Lake. Uh, you know, what we did was, uh, a mission to Bunker Hill, that 11,500 foot peak. And, uh, we linked up, it was pretty cool, man. We linked up. It was a cool link up. Yeah. It was really neat how it worked out because, at first, I was like, oh, man, we're going to have a lot of people. Like, it's hard to rally people out to Kingston. And then suddenly, we had a seven-person crew. It was pretty cool. And um, so it was uh, Noah Silverman from Reno. Palbot made the rally out. Myself, Matt Francis. And then um, three guys who are uh, – well, two of them are working on this basin project. So skiingthebasin.com, uh, yeah, Connor give, Phelan. Let's give him a shout-out. And, uh, and, and Willie B., Wilderness Willie. So C-N Phelan, P-H-E-L-A-N on Instagram and Wilderness Willie. Check those guys out. They're basically skiing six, 64 peaks in Nevada um, with 3,000 vertical feet of prominence or more and documenting every peak. It's super cool. It's a strong effort. It's a really Amazing. strong effort. These guys are badass skiers too. And, and, they, yep. and they pretty much knock these like mega peaks down. Like they're just like your backyard ski hill, you know? And so anyway, they came out and uh, they had a friend with them, Brian from Idaho, who's heading to the Eastern Sierra. And we, um, yeah, we just sent it up the road. The four of us, Matt, Palbot, Noah, and I went up on sleds. And then those three just like went right up the gut, up the south face from the bottom, from their truck. Um, and so we approached from the North, they approached from the South and we like, they did it. They did a partial lap. They skied down like a thousand feet and then climbed back up. And we all met like at the top, like literally at the same time, just, just perfect timing. And it was a bluebird day, no wind at all at 11,500 foot, you know, elevation on this knife edge Ridge with these huge, what was it? You said inspired in terrain. <laughs> in, it was yeah, inspired it was terrain. In, because it was a whole bunch of spires. But yeah, I mean, I, yeah. when I see that kind of terrain, we call it inspiring. And I just, I can't help but just want to go shred it. Powerball, it was hilarious, dude. Like he gets up there, he throws his drone up in the air. He flies the drone around, checks out the lines. Because the rocks, like there's definitely ones that don't go. And so we were, I, and some of the snow had been wind affected, so it was gone, right? But other spots were super deep. So he was like looking for the line and he eyeballs the line. And so we start going down and he didn't even mess around, dude. He was just like in and see ya, he was gone. And everyone else was like, where's Tom? He's like, oh, he's already down the mountain, I think. He just dropped, found the <laughs> chute he wanted and went for it. Colin, Colin and I eyed up that one. <laughs> I made sure Colin had eyes on me. Connor? Oh, sorry, Connor. Yeah, Connor, yeah. 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 So anyway, what a what a day. I mean, we we missed the peak snow by about an hour at the bottom. It got pretty hot and sticky. The top skied well though. The top skied well, and you know what? On a day like that, man, like you, I mean, to get it all is awesome. But we had such perfect weather that even if the snow is a little hot and sticky towards the bottom, I didn't care. It was just such an awesome day up there with a good crew, and yeah. it was yeah. I think it was hot and sticky everywhere. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty you much. Know, like everyone's been experiencing the great melt. Yeah, the great melt. Let's uh, talk about that because the, the truckie was raging today. Yeah, so I mean, what there's not, you know, it's, it was funny, Kurt, with us with the first five episodes. I mean, I, all we were talking about was, this, was the great reglaciation re of the Sierras. Right. And now we've reached the point where it's now the great melt. Yeah. And we're starting to see some, you know, some, some issues. This from summer that. will be the great roof repair <laughs> yeah. phase. Roof and deck. I, I was joking a couple weeks ago that someone needed to start a company in Truckee called Dex and Roofs. Yeah. Or Roofs and Decks. Yeah. Roofs and Decks. 
<laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's it, we're now into the great melt, and I think people are starting to like figure out like there was some damage, uh, and and but the great melt has its own, you know, it's creating its own uh, issues and, and 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 problems. I had someone that told me today that out, uh, you know, where the old ag check was out there in Prosser, that that there's a whole bunch of melt happening, and the water is collecting around the base of the trees. And then as the water that the ground is so saturated that it's just sort of because the, the the roots of the trees are you know you know trees melt out around the base of the trees for some reason right and then the water is collecting there at the base of the trees and not getting anywhere to run and then it eventually finds the weakest place to go and then is causing flooding like one of my friends was like one of my neighbors has all these issues with their tree wells are flooding their house oh wow I was like, I've I've never heard of yeah. that add that one to this winter oh wow. Uh, but yeah, we're in, we're into the great melt, but it looks like, you know, from a weather standpoint, you know, for, for our listeners here that are going to be tuning into this podcast for sort of my take on weather and, and our takes on trails and what's riding good and so on and so forth. You know, we're going to try to give a, a weekly weather breakdown and, and trail breakdown, but this, you know, this week it looks like we're, we're warm, but it is going to cool down. Uh, hopefully things will settle down with how warm it's been. I did see that there was some some big things happening in the eastern Sierras in the last couple of days on east aspects. So they, the skiing down there has been a little weird, I think, with how warm it got. Uh, but, you know, it, it does look like things are going to cool down and we're going to go get back into a legit corn cycle. And then maybe by the end of the month that we, we're going to have a trough again and start seeing some weather again. So I got my fingers crossed that we're going to get a couple more pow days. Uh, it's <laughs> Powbot thinks I'm more I want, Yeah, I want. Yeah, what? Uh, I'm thank, sure. Thank I'm, you, sir. I'll take another. We could definitely, we could definitely have that. There's no question. I mean, I've seen that happen, right? We got pow days in May. It happens. Yep. Um, but yeah, trails wise, um, Verdi. Yeah, what do you been? A handful of trails in Verdi are open. They're opening up quick. Um, Peavine's riding good. You can okay. ride P-Vine. So for all the people in Trucking Tahoe or Jones and ride a bike, go to P-Vine. It's good right now. Um, and Quincy, man. Quincy, California. Um, that Are is they a already sleeper. Mount, they're sleeper, melting out already, huh? Sleeper spot for riding. They've uh, put so much work in on the Mount Huff system. I mean, it's, get, it's yeah. every, every year it's getting better. Huff and then and then um, South Park. So South Park's at the bottom of Huff, and it's usually rideable year-round. And the trails there are super fun. There's probably 25, 30 miles of single track you can link together there. Um, it's a lot like great shoulder season riding. Cool. Um, and it's, and it's riding killer right now. So for anybody who wants to go ride, um, in Quincy, um, I'd recommend stopping by Ube Expeditions in Quincy. Um, they have all the beta on all the trails, um, and they can, they can set you up. Um, so yeah, if you're jonesing to ride a bike. Auburn's, Auburn's been good. Oh, of got, course, Auburn. Yeah, of course. Of yeah, yeah. And I did, Auburn, and I did see Grass, that. Nevada City. And I did see that some <clears> of the <throat> stuff in Nevada City is starting to melt out and get good yeah. again. Yep. Yeah, the lower stuff in Nevada City. It's amazing how much snow they got. They got hammered with snow. But yeah, Nevada City. Downeyville, nah, man. It's crazy. Still back in there, the first, huh? second, third divide. Forget Shadows it. Back forget there. it. It's so what about, deep. What about the other direction? Downstream, kind of. There's so many trees down. So there's tree removal going okay. on that needs to happen. But yeah, Fiddle Creek Ridge for sure will be clear. On um, the north face, definitely not. But like going up, you know, um, like Duncan was saying earlier, he's got an e-bike. I've got an e-bike. You've got an e-bike. 
You got to pick yours up. I got it. I got to get it. But e-bikes, North Yuba fiddle halls, man, talk about fun. That is some fun, man. So fun. Not that fun on a mountain bike, but a lot of fun on an e-bike. So that'll be riding pretty well. Um, I I don't know what the tree situation is, but it's probably a thing still. Well, when we get word, we'll 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 get the word out there. Yeah, for sure. People know what's riding good. Absolutely. Uh, All right, so let's let's turn it into our our last segment here. I think Uh, you know we we were talking about on a few of the other pods about must-see moments, but I think, you know, with our new sponsor, Sendy, we're just going to throw, throw out a Sendy award. Send of the week. Yeah, Send of the nice. week. And, uh, <laughs> you know, this this can apply to just about anything, you know. It's totally. Someone being a good person or, or someone doing something rad on a bike or a ski or a snowboard. But I definitely want to give out a, a, a shout-out to to Noah Gaffney, who is the second, oh, yes. second, second generation Gaffney at yep. Squaw. Sorry, Palisades, Olympic Valley, and uh, what he's been like, he's been super dedicated to to sending that place this year, and a couple of the clips that I've seen lately of him have just been all time. You know, he's the, that next generation that's just taking it up a notch, and that's I, I I love that place back in the day where you could just go there and someone was always you know raising the bar, and it's been super you know I I, I you know. That's one of the things that I do love about Instagram is that I, I feel like I don't even need to go to Olympic Valley anymore to like sort of know what's happening because it's all on, mm-hmm. it's all, I can oh, see yeah. it all and oh, I yeah. feel like I'm a part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but his send the other, he posted a video of him sending the fingers the other day that, you know, he's like, Hey, it is, you know, they call it our fingers race for a reason. And he just went mock chicken down the fingers and just sent it. And I was so impressed with that. So I'm giving him a shout out. I'm giving giving the whole family a shout out. Like just legendary people, like the work that they've done in Tahoe, on on, on everything. Uh, you know, I'm just inspired by them, and I I think that their that whole family and particularly Noah, it deserves a Sandy shout out. Did you see him send um, what they call that bunk, buck and bronco off the Palisades? Yeah, it only that's, goes in certain years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's another. Like, I oh even, my god! I didn't. Man. I didn't know what clip to choose, but just the one that I just saw most recently yeah. was the fingers one. And so, so he just, gets like multiple sends oh, of the week. He's multiple. <laughs> this whole year has been. Yeah, <laughs> it's been impressive. It's impressive. It's been impressive. So yeah, let's give him a shout out. Yeah. He gets the Sandy Award. Nice. Maybe maybe we can have him on the show. One, yeah, maybe. You never know. Um, one thing that we always like to ask our guests, um, before the end of the show, and I know we're going to get a good answer. Yeah. Especially since we're like a bottle and a half. Yeah. Bottle (laughs) and half of wine. Things are just flowing here. Yeah. They're just, yeah. Stream of consciousness is just getting going. What does mind the track mean to you? Hmm. Well, I, I think of immediately, uh, mind in the track. And for me, it's, uh, it's the place you go when you're in that track. And so mind the track to me has a, uh, like mind, mind the step, mind the gap, you right. know, mind the gap, yeah, getting off the train in, uh, in London, you know, mind the gap, uh, mind the track, mind in the track for me is where it's the place that allows you. I think I talked about it earlier to where the layers come away. You enter that flow state for me, um, that's that's the place that I'm I'm always looking for, um, and it, it appears in different places in my life. But uh, that track, whether it's a single track or a skin track or a wide open powder field or a pillow line or a sh- steep technical rocky, scary as hell 
single track in Calistoga. Shout out to Calistoga, Oat Hill Mine Trail, where, <laughs> oh, where, I, where I learned how to ride. Um, to me, it's that place where yeah. where things go quiet and mm. your mind is in that track. And that's that's the magic place, man. I think we're all hunting for it to, to a degree. So Couldn't have said it better myself, man. Yeah, bud. Well said. Duncan, where can people find out more about you and your wines and... Mm-hmm. and- I, I'm terrible at selling. I love making wine. I'm terrible at selling it, but <laughs> certainly uh, Ar- arnettroberts.com uh, is our website. We've got a mailing list. You know, people all over the world buy our wine from that list, and we ship it to them. As long as you don't live in Utah and a couple counties in Tennessee, basically. Well, Otherwise, <laughs> uh, so you can find us. We've got a we've got a we've got a website. We're that we're that up to date, but uh, it's it describes our vineyards and a little bit of our story. Um, what? We make we make wine from all over California, from Santa Barbara up to El Dorado. The, the closest vineyards to Tahoe are down in outside of Placerville, um, and then we've got stuff in Sonoma Coast and Napa. And uh, yeah, you can find us find us on the web arnettroberts.com and join our mailing list if you're interested. We've got a wine club if you're interested in that, and uh, come see us if you're in Healdsburg. It's nothing fancy. We've got kind of a uh, you know fancy warehouse winery, so to speak, and uh, but we host people and we've got a, a beautiful place like. Bring your kids, bring your dog, you know, bring your bike. There's tons of really good riding in Healdsburg. So yeah, we're, we're, we're open, uh, open for business and you can, you can find us. So yeah, I'd, rec- I'd recommend getting on the mailing list because, uh, we, we didn't talk about it on the pod, but this, this guy sitting across from us here, Kurt, just got a perfect score on a wine. So it, I think the wine is going to get harder and harder to get. <laughs> oh yeah. Better so, jump on it too. Yeah, so all those <laughs> f- folks out there that are wine lovers, like get on the mailing list, uh, that they're making legit juice. Thanks Tom. Yeah. Thanks Kurt. It's been an honor. Thanks Tom. Yeah. It's been good. Yeah. Yeah. Fun. I look forward to, uh, more stories that we get to, to uh, create together over the years. You know, this is uh, we're just getting started, man. Just getting started. That's right. Yeah. This is only episode six. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> well, with that, Let's sign us out, bud. Thanks for listening to episode six of Mind the Track with our guest, Duncan Myers. Until next time, get out there, get deep, and put your mind in the track. (laughs) 